We're going to be in the book of Galatians, chapter 4. So if you've got your Bible, you can open up to Galatians, chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 8 through 20. And if you're new to this series with us, Paul is writing a letter to a church in Galatia and to a people for whom he has a lot of affection. And these people have been kind of wooed away from the freedom they had in Christ back into kind of a works righteousness. This, these people, the Judaizers, had found their way into the church and basically convinced these Gentile Christians that before you can be Christian, you gotta become Jewish through works of the law. And so Paul writes this letter to try to counteract that. And over the course of going through this letter, he's made lots of arguments and we waded through arguments. And today he's gonna make it a little bit more personal, which is good. Before we go there, we're just going to rewind the clock a little bit. Me and uh, Zach Flight, our tech director on Tuesday for a staff meeting, we were looking for a photo of pogs. Why don't you throw that up there? Yes. And when I said that word in staff meeting, we'll throw any particular people under the bus. There were several people on our staff who had no idea what this was. Every millennial in the room immediately knew what this was. And for those of you who didn't raise a millennial or who aren't a millennial, if you were a kid in the 90s, this was a flash in the pan, okay? But this was a huge obsession. People collected these. They've got sets of them. And then you go on the playground and you put them in stacks and you try to flip them. And whatever flipped to a certain side, you got to keep and you'd trade them and things like that. It was, it was a fad. Fads come and go. For some of you, it wasn't pogs. Maybe it was baseball carts. Okay, maybe you, if like me, you collected baseball cards in the early 90s, at some point you realized they were worthless. Um, that was me. My dad and my stepdad collected Steins. We had Beanie Baby fads, all sorts of different things. For me, with Pogs and for marbles and for baseball cards, there was always trading involved. And we'd go and, and you'd trade things back and forth with your friends. And the idea behind trading and perhaps you've traded things with others if you tried to collect sets yourself, is that you hand something with value over to someone in order to get something by virtue of itself or its set that is more valuable. Why do I start here? Paul, in his letter to Galatians, as he gets to be more confrontational, he's frustrated that they have traded, that they have exchanged, that they have given up something immeasurable value, the gospel. And they've exchanged it for something far less valuable. They have traded away freedom in Christ for slavery to the law. And it simply just wasn't a good deal. And so Paul, over the course of these 13 verses, is going to point out the problem. He's going to make a plea and he's going to demonstrate his passion, not just for the truth of the gospel, but for the people for whom he cares dearly in the church of Galatia. And that's where we are today. So we're going to start in verse 8 of chapter 4. And I'm going to read. He writes this. But in the past, since you, di since you didn't know God, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's. Now, he's talking to Gentiles. These are non-Jewish believers. So whatever their past was before Jesus, it was a non-Jewish past. And so historians have gone back and forth and put out a few different ideas for what he could be talking here, what it is that they were enslaved to that were not gods. It could have been mystic religions 
that flourished in southern Galatia. He could have been referring to the Roman imperial cult, emperor worship. He could have been referring to pagan gods of ancient Greece. Or perhaps there were some sects of people who worshiped the stars. We don't know what it was. We just know that before Jesus, they were worshiping something. And so he points that out, continuing in verse nine. But now, since you know God, or rather have become known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elements? Some of your translations, worldly elements. This idea of worldly principles. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? You are observing special days, months, seasons, and years. I am fearful for you that perhaps my labor for you has been wasted. What a gut punch way to end this first section. Now, the thing I want to start with, I want to point out here is that Paul treats the legalism, all right, the, the, the Jewish legalism that's being imposed on this church. He compares that to paganism. He actually lumps them in the same bucket. Now, I want you to catch this. Because he starts with saying, in the past, you were enslaved to some sort of pagan religion, deity, whatever it was. And then he says, now you are observing what? Special days, months, season, and years. Talking about the Jewish calendar. And he compares them to one another. That to go back to, to submit themselves to the Jewish law as a means for earning salvation is turning back to the weak and worthless elements of this world. They all deal in the same delusion. It's the first point that we're going to look at, that, that Paul, in the way that he proclaims the gospel, we see that the gospel is going to confront this spiritual delusion and that both the pagan past and the, the Jewish legalism, both of them have this in common. They both have in common that in our, that our broke, uh, broken, dark, dying world, that we can reconnect with God through our own efforts. That's the delusion. That's what they have in common. Now, if you're new to the church or if you're new to the Bible, I wanna invite you to follow me for a moment through this because we're gonna back up and talk about what's undergirding everything that Paul is saying. If God is the ultimate source of life, then disconnecting from God would lead to a dying world. If God is our ultimate source of wholeness, disconnecting from God would lead to brokenness in the world. If God is our ultimate source of light and good, then disconnecting from God would lead to a dark and evil world. And one of our greatest issues for both people inside and outside of the church is that we, we look for all of these things, but we do so apart from the actual source. You want to live an abundant and satisfying life, you might say, and perhaps you would chase that down in a job, with a home, with a car, whatever it might be. And yet with all those things, you will not outpace the death and decay that comes for you. You may be seeking wholeness, and you might look for ways to invest in your well-being in all sorts of places. Listening to financial gurus about getting your, your budget in check. Looking about mental health practices, exercising and eating good. By the way, those are all great. I'm not saying that taking care of yourself is bad. But even in the midst of all those things, at the end of the day, you're still broken. 
You try to find the good in the world and you try to be the good in the world, perhaps. Maybe you help your neighbors with their leaves and snow. You open doors for people. You give to the homeless. You leave extra large tips when you go out to eat. But in your worst moments, you still know what it's like to struggle in that cloud of darkness. And in your best moments, you still occupy a world in which a simple turn of the news will demonstrate the latest scam, assault, robbery, shooting. The list goes on. You look for these things in the world because you were created to know these things, life, wholeness, goodness. And you will try to use God's created gifts to find them, but they are simply shadows of the real thing. And yet we desire him nonetheless. Our issue is we've been disconnected from the source of those things. And that disconnection happens when humanity decided to tell an infinite, holy, perfect God, not your way, my way. In the opening chapters the Bible. And the question is, how do you reestablish that connection with God? How do you reestablish that relationship, that intimate relationship with God? Now, the basic worldly principles, what Paul is talking about in this text, what he uses that phrase to talk about both paganism and legalism, the ones that undergird both of those things, those principles are teaching you that you can earn your way to God. This is the delusion. When I was in elementary school, I was, remember visiting my grandpa Art and my grandma Kate at their home. And my grandpa Art has since gone to be with the Lord. And this memory in a lot of ways is, is very fuzzy. There's some parts of it that I remember extremely concretely. But I do remember being in their home. I remember being in the bathroom. I was young, like early elementary school. And I remember climbing something. And I don't remember what I was climbing, but I remember as I climbed something I wasn't supposed to climb, I knocked something over. And it was some sort of glass figurine. And it fell and it shattered. And I remember my grandpa coming in and him being very visibly upset. And it turned out that this little glass figurine had, was something that had belonged to his grandma and had been passed down. And I had broken it. Now there's nothing I could do to bring it back. Now my grandpa loved me. He reminded me that he loved me. He forgave me, but we couldn't really exist in the kind of harmonious relationship with each other until that offense was overcome with forgiveness. But in order to forgive me, he had to absorb that offense. It was his cost to pay, his burden to bear. He had to absorb the loss. There's simply nothing I could do as a child to bring it back. And you could imagine that I could try. Can I clean some of your sea glass, grandpa? They live by the beach. They love collecting sea glass. He loved it. Can I sweep your porch? There was always sand all over the porch. Can I vacuum the house, clean the windows? Nothing would bring it back. There's nothing I could do. He simply had to absorb it, which he did. And he did that out of love. The issue with both paganism and this Jewish legalism is that they posit that there's something you can do when you can't, which is why God chose to absorb our offense by coming in the person of Jesus, by taking on flesh, by submitting to a brutal execution on a cross because the wages of sin is death. 
And if we were going to be rescued into eternal life, someone would have to die in our place. Someone would have to pay that price. God would have to pay that price. He would have to absorb the cost of our offense that we might be forgiven. And that is the forgiveness that comes with a reconnection with God. That is the forgiveness that establishes a relationship with God, with the source. That forgiveness is the start of wholeness, of goodness, of life. And it's not a shadow of those things, but the real thing because they come from the source of those things. This is the gospel message. And Paul wasn't willing to trade it for anything. He wasn't willing to give this up. The people thought they had to earn something. He wanted to make it really clear. That's not the point. Continuing in verse 12, Paul writes, I, I beg you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I also became like you. You have not wronged me. You know that previously I preached the gospel to you because of a weakness of the flesh. In some of your translations, it will say sickness, infirmity, ailment. Paul had something, something was wrong with his body. You did not despise or reject me, verse 14, though my physical condition was a trial for you. On the contrary, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Now this, these next few verses, this gives us insight into kind of the origin story of the Galatian church between Paul and his establishing a relationship with them. It tells us something about his dedication to them, about his commitment to the gospel, but ultimately his commitment to mission. This is our second point we're going to glean from the text this morning is we're going to see that for Paul, the gospel compelled a, a missional discipline, a missional perspective as we look at one what it is that the, his frame of mind as he brought the gospel to the Galatians and the circumstances with which he brought the gospel to the Galatians. We're gonna break those down one at a time. Looking at two things. On the first hand, Paul exhorts them to become like him. And then next he mentions a sickness. We'll go one and two. First, what does Paul mean when he says become like me? Because I have become like you. Timothy George, New Testament scholar, writes, Paul was saying to the Galatians, look at what has happened to me. I was once a zealous devotee of the Mosaic law, stricter than any of you, and careful observance in its many requirements. But Christ has delivered me from bondage to the law. Now I long for you to become like me, living in the liberty of those who are truly the children of Abraham. And of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul longs for the people of Galatia to remember the freedom they had in Christ as opposed to submitting themselves to the slavery that comes from the law and the check boxes they would try to pursue and earning right standing before God. But what does he mean when he says he became like them? Become like me, for I became like you. That's what he says. How did he become like them? George continues. He writes, Paul described his missionary strategy, just some bigger words, but we'll come back to it, in terms of cultural accommodation without compromise of conviction. Cultural accommodation without compromise of conviction. Why? For the sake of a wider gospel witness. Paul became to those without the law, the Gentile inhabitants of Galatia, he became like one not having the law so as to win those who were aliens of Israel. It's a beautiful thing. 
cultural accommodation without compromise of conviction. This is what Christians do in spreading the gospel. And this is what we've done for 2000 years. You might call this incarnational ministry. Hudson Taylor, as an example, is a 19th century missionary. He went to China. He lived there 54 years to proclaim the gospel, founded China Inland Mission. And when he went there, he became as the people were. He took on their dress, being one of the first Western missionaries to do so. He ate their food. He learned their languages. He became as they were. Why? Because one of our tasks as God's people is to translate the gospel into other people's contexts, which we do by relating to their contexts. Jesus did it first because he went from being God in heaven eternal and took on flesh. Talk about contextualization, right? For Paul, the mission always mattered more than the method. And it varied depending on where he went. And it varies depending on where you go today. This is why for healthy churches today, we would say the same thing. Mission matters more than method. Method will change, but mission never does. Now this isn't about turning cultural relevance into an idol. This is about removing cultural obstacles from the proclamation of the gospel. And we do this abroad and at home. We do this as a church and as individuals. We'll talk about both those things. Think about this with me. Once upon a time, you'd walk into a church and men and women would be sitting on different sides of the room. We don't do that anymore. And if you walked into a church and they assigned you like that, that might be a cultural obstacle for you. We see this in our worship. Once upon a time, music was sung without any instrumentation. We don't do that anymore. Some do, we don't. Once upon a time, churches began to use organs in their worship, even though that stirred a lot of concern among some people. And then years went by and organs were removed and drums were added and that stirred concern among some people. And then light and fog made its way in and that stirred concern among some people. I've said this before, I'll say it again. God's people have been using bright lights in worship long before secular concerts were, okay? This is why worship is different now than it was 15 years ago and 15 years ago was different than it was 50 years ago. The method changed, but the mission didn't. And for many of us, this is, we just chalk it up to generational differences. I remember having a conversation. I was a youth pastor in Massachusetts and had a conversation with someone who's older in the church about worship preferences. And you know, you know me, I'm a bit of an old soul in a lot of ways. Okay, and a lot of my preferences, I'm, I'm a bit of an old soul. My wife reminds me of this from time to time. And, and in this conversation with this uh, older gentleman who I still keep in touch with, we still touch base a few times a year. I remember in this great reversal, I didn't expect the conversation to go this way. This man, he said something to me. It caught me off guard. He said, Zach, if you're over 40 and you love everything about a church service, they're probably doing something wrong. Now he meant that tongue in cheek, Okay. And we will have services here and I will hear someone in their 20s and 70s both say it was awesome. That's great. Okay, we don't want any, we don't need anyone to dislike a service. Hear the point. The method can change, but the mission doesn't. This isn't just for the church, but for us as individuals. 
Paul became as they were. Why? So that they could become as he was. You have friends, you have family, you have coworkers. And the Lord is maybe calling you to witness to them. And just as Jesus meets us where we are, perhaps you need to meet them where they are. Perhaps they have a hobby that you need to jump in on. Maybe they have an interest that you need to take up so that they can be met precisely where they are. Don't hear me what I'm not saying. We're not, I'm not saying sin. We're not saying go anywhere near that. We're talking about mission. How might God be calling you to become like they are so that they can become as you are? How might God be calling you to meet them so that they can meet Jesus? This doesn't mean saturating the gospel with culture. We're not talking about that. We're talking about removing culturally embedded obstacles from proclaiming the gospel. Now next, Paul mentions a sickness, an infirmity. And we don't know what it is and people have all sorts of guesses. You can get a ton of them. You go online, you Google this. People have all sorts of guesses all over the map. What do we know? We know that this sickness was his occasion for visiting Galatia. That his sickness was the occasion for him spreading the gospel and planting this church. I want to rewind the clock for you. Seven or eight years now. Trina will... My wife will remember this. I had an oral surgery and a terrible reaction. Um, my, my immune system was, was shutting down, coming out of the surgery. And I had to go to the ER. And some really nasty symptoms. And I'm laying in there and the doctor comes in. They're getting ready to do tests and stuff. And he had my wife leave the room because he needed to ask me if there were any extramarital relations happening. Um, because in his words, these symptoms look like what we'd expect if you had HIV. Okay? That's what he said. And so a little bit later, doctors turned over. A new doctor came in and, and said, don't worry, you don't have HIV. This is nothing like HIV. So I don't know what happened there. There was a disconnect, but that's what happened. And it turned out that my, I, I had a terrible uh, allergic reaction to a drug I was given. Now, why do I share this? Because at no point in that entire ordeal, at no point when they were doing tests and pricking my skin and they were interviewing me and asking these questions and me having to drive there and sit there and wait and wait and wait for At no point did I think to myself, this is a great time to plant a church. <laughs> when we suffer, when we are sick and tired and exhausted, when we feel the burden of whatever physical ailment we're enduring in the moment and it taxes us, perhaps to an inexpressible end. When we experience challenges and animosity from others, when things just get hard, generally our first instinct, not just our first, but our only instinct is to, to try to escape it. And it usually ends there, doesn't it? God, how do I get out of this? God, how do I make this stop? God, how do I make the pain go away? And what blows me away about what Paul says here in this origin story is that whatever it was that was causing him such great discomfort, whatever it was that he was suffering through, 
it was actually ended up being the very reason for him to introduce the gospel to this people on planet church. Meaning, as opposed to saying, how do I get out of this? The better question was, God, what are you calling me to in the midst of this? Who are you calling me to in the midst of this? What people am I gonna be exposed to? What relationships might I build because of this that I otherwise wouldn't build? What's the invitation I'm supposed to extend because you've brought me to this point? Those are hard, different kinds of questions than what we're used to asking, right? But that's Paul living in a missionally minded way. That's Paul being compelled by the gospel with a missional discipline, a missional perspective. And it means him giving up comfort for the gospel call. And that wasn't worth trading. That wasn't worth giving up. Continuing in verse 15. Where then is your blessing, Paul writes? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Paul's reminding them, we used to be good. You used to like me quite a bit. So then, verse 16, have I become your enemy because I told you the truth? I know there's people in this room who can relate to this in which even in a loving and gracious way when you've offered up truth and it's, it's led to this. Paul's experiencing that here. They court you eagerly, but not for good. They want to exclude you from me so that you would pursue them. This is, this is what you see in cults, right? A cult will disconnect you from all the other influences in your life. Disconnect you relationally from people. Monopolize you. But it is always good to be pursued in a good manner. And not just when I am with you. My children, we see Paul's affection here. I am again suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. Paul's distress here is so great that he's comparing it to what a woman goes through. She's given birth. And some of you ladies be like, Paul, hold it for a moment. No, he can't actually relate. He just knows it's tough, okay? He, he wants them to understand what he's feeling. I would like to be with you right now and change my tone of voice because I don't know what to do about you. In this closing section, we see that a gospel-centered love, when people we know are struggling, is gonna lead to some relational distress. And what we see Paul do here is the exact opposite of what you see in the world. It's the exact opposite of you do you. It's the opposite of do whatever makes you happy. Do whatever feels good. Just do that. Do it even if it's temporary. Even if it won't last. Just you do you. Why doesn't Paul say this to the Galatians? Why does he remind them of how distraught he is over their terrible decisions? Because if Paul were to say, you do you, that wouldn't be love. Love doesn't say that. Love can't say, do whatever makes you happy. That's not love. It's not a loving thing to say. It's not loving to watch a friend become enslaved to addiction and say, whatever feels good. It's not loving to let a child eat candy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner and say, hey, as long as you're enjoying it. It's not loving to see a Christian brother or sister pull away from the love of God, distance themselves from the church, pursuing worldly principles. It's not loving to watch that and say nothing. 
It's not love. Now this section here, it's not talking about missions. That was the origin story. This last section here, this is talking about friendship and affection. This is talking about gospel community. It's talking about people bound together by a shared love for Jesus and from Jesus, being willing to trade their own comfort and convenience for the importance of the gospel and the lives of their spiritual brothers and sisters. And this is something every Christian has to make a predecision about. Who do you have in your life with permission to confront you? If you're a Christian, you got to have this. I would say this is a non-negotiable. Who has permission to confront you? What friend has permission to call out your nonsense when you start becoming about nonsense? Who has the right to give you a metaphorical slap upside the head when you need it? For some of you, it's more of a physical slap. This is what Paul does to the Galatians because affection and his love for them is so real. This is what Paul does for the Galatians because his comfort isn't worth giving up the gospel. It's just so easy to just say nothing. This is what Paul does for the Galatians because the gospel, it just isn't worth trading even when it's hard, even when it demands confrontation, even when the truth is difficult to speak, even when it goes against what's convenient for us. It's too beautiful. It's too wonderful. The gospel is too powerful. It's too freeing to be traded for anything else. And so church, as we go out today, this week, my hope is that we would sense when we are tempted, when we are tempted by worldly principles into checking off boxes to earn God's love, as opposed to standing on the rock, as opposed to standing firmly covered by the blood of Jesus, knowing that we have right standing before God because of what Jesus did, not what we can do. My hope as we go out is that we can be disciplined missionally and that we can sense that we could give over our circumstances to God and operate within them. Remembering that it's all about the mission, not about the method. And then finally, I would challenge you to both be the kind of person who can confront in love, but also, even more difficult, to be the kind of person who can be confronted in love. For some of you, that starts in your homes. For some of you, that starts with your kids, the roommate. I pray that we can do all of that empowered by the Holy Spirit. Pray with me. You are good. God, I pray for softened hearts. I pray for good conversation. I pray for opportunity today, for opportunity this week to step out of our comfort zones, to speak truth. Help us, Lord, to lean on you. Holy Spirit, Nudge us, push us, kindle our desire, spread your truth to love people well. We need you. We love you. To you be the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.